Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Joining me on today's episode is the writer, producer and film director Adam Egypt Mortimer. I've been a huge fan of his work ever since I saw Daniel Isn't Real. It was one of those films that I took a chance on. Arrow released it and in true typical fashion, I don't have to go and even see the films that Arrow release. I'll just always invest my money in their releases because I think they're a great company and they always pick some really weird films and cult films and I just have true faith in them. So when I saw this Daniel Isn't Real and the cover which was all this really dark red and purpley and just looked something like David Lynch would do, I invested my money in it and boy it didn't let me down. This film is amazing. And we now get to sit down and talk about his brand new film which has just come out Arch Enemy. And if you stick around to the end of the podcast, there's going to be a chance to also win that on DVD. But it's a great interview. He's so full of life, so much energy, so much passion. And I say this on every podcast, he's a guest I want to get back as soon as possible and talk for longer because it wasn't long enough. But I hope you all absolutely love it as much as me. And I think I just want to get straight to it. So here's me and Adam talking all things movies. So, Adam, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's nice to nice to be talking to you. What I wanted to do today is start by taking it back to maybe when you were in your teenage years or at school and find out what it was that made you want to take that road into making films or being an actor. Where was it that you kind of found yourself really drawn to wanting to get into this industry? You know, I, I ask myself that a lot because it's, it's one of those things that seems like it pervaded everything throughout my life and and yet at the same time I don't know when the definitive moment was to sort of plunge but I I do know that when I was I think about 15 years old I made a a short film on Super 8 and what's interesting to me is looking back on that piece it's has so many of the similar themes of everything that I still do now. It was um, it was a black and white movie about a, a depressed teenager, <laughs> and um, and it mixed um, color animation with the black and white Super Eight. Um, the animation was like that I just drew myself, like scraps of paper and, and things yeah. like that. And and it was about suicide, and it had a moment of him of the character meeting the Grim Reaper and 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 taking down the. Grim Reaper's hood and it was himself and just all of these same themes of doppelgangers and suicide and sacrifice and madness that have <laughs> wound up being like all I ever talk about. Um, and, I, and I think prior to that, you know, I, I have this memory of um, when I was really young being at my uncle's house and taking he had a bound copy of the screenplay for The Exorcist, like the published script. Oh, and no. I remember opening that up and and, and and reading it, it was a little bit you know above my reading level at the time, but just being obsessed with like, I think that was the first time I saw a script, I saw a screenplay yeah. for a movie I, I, I wouldn't see for decades later. But um, I was just sort of fascinated with like the form of it. And yeah. I remember starting to write screenplays, you know, as a as a as a little kid that that didn't get far beyond like the opening credits, <laughs> you know, like the opening credits, and then a scene of people talking. But just being like really interested in in that form, and um, and so I, I you know, cut two years and years later, I, I I never wound up going to film school, 
um, I was sort of dabbling in, in, in making films and experimental film kind of projects with my friends, but I was a musician for a while. Like that yeah. was my main creative thing. Um, and then um, I had, I, I, I think I did enough music, you know, like I went on a tour or two, I put out a record or two. And, and I remember sitting in a van when I was driving with, with a, a band that I had been, that I was like support playing with. And I was always filming, like I was always filming the musicians sort of on my scene and, and things like that. But I remember being in a van driving across the United States, reading that book, um, Raging Bulls and Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, which is about the 70s new wave of America cinema. And I was like, OK, this is I have to do this now. And 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 I'm going to make this sound a lot faster and simpler than it actually was, but then I gave away my musical instruments and moved to LA to become wow. a film. That's very um, brave. And sort of made this choice of like, I can only, it's going to be so hard to do this that I can't be like, Oh, maybe I should also be playing music. Oh, maybe I'll, you know what I mean? Like I had to make this like real serious break. Um, although again, that sounds dramatic, but then the reality of it is that years and years and years go by and there's lots of yeah. meandering until you finally get to make a movie. But, um, but there was, you know, there were those few sort of watershed moments. And I think a couple other watershed moments were simply seeing movies that totally fucked me up and seeing um, a VHS copy of Pink Floyd, The Wall. Oh, my Lord. When I was young, really like ripped my brain out and ripped my soul out. And I, and I felt sick from months after seeing yeah. it. Uh, um, but amazingly, I think, you know, things like that those kind of like incredible experiences with movies, possibly negative experiences really like kept me thinking about the, the, the form, the medium and, and wanting yeah. to be a part of it somehow. You know, I think sometimes the most traumatic movie experiences of my life are the ones that have stayed with me the most and maybe influenced me the most. And certainly on, you know, with, with Arch Enemy, I was very, I was deeply, you know, sort of uh, influenced by, Pink Floyd, the wall, the movie, you know, aesthetically and, and, and sort of thematically. So it's bit, you know, as meandering and long and amorphous as a career can be, you can also then reduce it to these just like perfectly straight little arrows from when you're, you know, nine, 10 years old to what you do now. It's, it's interesting, you know, when you look back and make sense of it. Definitely. And you then mentioned obviously this one film by Pink Floyd that kind of made you just think, what the fuck? And it stayed with you and kind of kept thinking about it. But at what point was it that you started kind of noticing the same director's work and taking an interest in certain directors? Was there like a, you know, for me growing up, I absolutely love John Carpenter and Spielberg. And nowadays it's people like Christopher Nolan, but I'm probably, you know, someone like John Carpenter, I think has done it all. Is there directors mm -hmm. out there that you were just starting to get, to feel that their work was oh i noticed this person's work and i think it's got the same feel as this title and then realizing that these are all done by the same guy yeah you know i i think um one one really strong example of that for me was with david cronenberg and um and i remember when i was i think early in college reading a book of interviews with david cronenberg where yeah. he was um he was talking about the brood and he talked about um, how The Brood was what he wrote uh, during and after an, an extremely brutal uh, divorce. And, and, and I remember like that, 
idea really hit me because I don't think I had previously really thought about how a genre movie like The Brood, which is, you know, very, uh, you know, it's very linear. It, it, I mean, it's full of ideas. It's an incredible movie, but I, I, I think it's one of those movies that I like more the older I get. When I first saw it, it was this crazy movie about killer kids. And, um, and, and to realize that, that it had this seed of like absolute real life and emotional interiority that is what drove him to create these very external images is something that like really began working on my understanding of, uh, of what directors do and especially what genre directors do. And, um, you know, and, and I think that was probably around the time that I was interested in, you know, digging up the most obscure, you know, like found all of his short films and those first two hour long movies he made crimes, crimes of the future and stereo, which really blew, you know, blew me away at the time. Cause they're this sort of, crossover between experimental cinema and science fiction horror and i was like what is all of this <laughs> how does this work yeah which which is interesting because also i think um there was a, a time prior to that i think around the time i was in high school where i was um like you it sounds you know sort of exhaustively w- watching all of the science fiction and, and horror movies at uh at my video store at my local video store yeah. around the corner from my house and somebody, some genius who worked there, some, you know, hipster colleague student had put Tarkovsky's stalker in the science fiction section, you know, so you're sort of going from like 1999, the Bronx to, you know, Galaxina, and then right in the middle, there's, there's stalker. And I brought that home and watched it. And, and it was another one of these, you know, very memorable experiences. It just ripped my head out. And, and I remember sitting right in front of the TV, constantly pausing it to write down things in a, in a yellow legal pad that people were saying. And I'd just never seen anything quite like that before. Although that didn't immediately inspire me to watch everything by Tarkovsky. And it took me a long time to really know that that was sort of a person where everything he did was crucial. But that one movie... I don't know, sort of sent me on a, on a, on a path of a sensibility, right. That had to do with like, what is this crossover between the most insane genre stuff that I like and something that's clearly art. Have you um, had a chance yet to see Possessor by Cronenberg's son, Brandon? Yeah. 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 It's fascinating. Um, I loved his first movie, Antiviral. I saw that at a festival years ago when it came out. And then, um, I saw Possessor, uh, it was the, the short film that he did, it has a really complex, strange title. They played that at, uh, at, at Fright Fest UK when I was there with, uh, with Daniel Isn't Real. So I got to see that projected on a big screen. What the hell is it called? It's like you will experience deviation from your body. It's, it's got some strange title like that, but it was sort of a, an experiment in putting together the visuals for, for Possessor. And yeah, and then I, then I saw Possessor. And, was it the piece? Um, please, please speak continuously and describe yes. experiences as they come to you, or something. Yes, the longest title ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that I remember seeing that, and I was like, "What? Like, whatever this is a precursor to, I can't wait." And I mean, Possessor is such a well-executed movie, and it's um, it's just absolutely fascinating. To I, I don't know anything about Brandon Cronenberg, um, but it's fascinating to be doing the same thing that your father did, who is a titan of the form, and to even be working within the same genre, subgenre, microgenre, metaphysics as your father, and yet and yet still be making work that is like 
so overpoweringly original and I can't wait to see what he does next. And I, I, that, that dynamic is absolutely fascinating. I had him on the podcast recently and I just think he's got, I know it's hard because of his dad's attachment and everyone will always say, well, it's because of your dad and you're going to try and live into his shoes. Like with Joe Hill and Stephen King, it's tough. But Brandon, I think, has got the absolute world at his feet if he wants it and he's just a genius. Yeah, clearly, clearly. He's a great filmmaker and he's you know born to do it and all the, all the power to him because I can't wait to see whatever he does next. And looking at your early work, obviously you were involved in a music video with Breaking Benjamin one of the early early songs which is nearly scarily 20 years ago now yeah. like that was my first um first thing i was I, I i i guess that's the first thing i directed really it was yeah. um it wasn't directly a music video for them it was, it was their shorts their video short wasn't it well it was um uh, how it came about was i at the time i was working at Nickelodeon, the kids company doing like producing and editing for interstitials. And and somebody got in touch with me and said, Hey, we'll give you uh, a couple thousand dollars to take this Breaking Benjamin song and cut uh, 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 shots from the movie Hellboy over it and release that as a kind of viral video. And I said, what if I take your few thousand dollars and shoot an entirely high concept short music video on 35 millimeter film that will tie into Hellboy and use nice. some uh, of the footage, but like have like a whole thing. And 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 they agreed to it. So I took this money and flew out to LA and and called my buddy who was just starting out producing and got an actor and, and we shot this music video about a kind of like a weirdo janitor at a hospital who has an obsession with Hellboy and he skateboards around the hospital at night spray painting Hellboy on the wall and painting himself all in red. And um, I think we actually got a version of the, of the prop fist from the movie to use in it. And um, yeah, that was, so that was like the first time I ever directed something like as a project, like somebody yeah. said, here's money and I, and I directed it. And I, and I, I, you know, and I think an interesting thing, I always point to that experience to people who are, you know, trying to figure out how to get into filmmaking and, and things because if I had kept the money and just done the edit, it would have been a really significant amount of money for me at the time. Yeah. But instead I made $0 of profit and spent all of it, <laughs> but came away with something that was like a really cool, here's what I can do if, if, I, if, if I'm able to direct. And that, and, and that really like helped me take a step forward. And right around that same time, uh, I, one of the, this like very avant-garde noise, uh, experimental band that I was involved with, uh, uh, got a record deal that enabled me to shoot a music video for them for really very little money, but still, you know, a couple thousand dollars. And, um, and, and, and we created this very high concept kind of lo-fi, but experimental cool thing. And so between the two of those, suddenly I had made, suddenly I had directed things yeah. and, and thus began the um, molasses like climb up the hill to finally being able to make a movie. My first introduction to your work was I buy a lot of Arrow releases. Um, even if I haven't seen the film, I'll invest in them. They're a British company here that have been there from the beginning and you get all these amazing features and commentaries and the extra footage. It's, it's incredible. If, you, if, you're interest, if you're interested in film, it's only, I believe, those in Criterion now that really still put their heart and soul into it, not just a trailer and a... Yeah, no, I love what Arrow does. Their, 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 their titles are just, I mean, it's all the greatest, you know, 
cult movies and they yeah. just lovingly put them together. I, I, I love them and I loved working with them. And that, and that's how I first saw Daniel isn't real. And, you know, I literally just took a gamble. I just thought, Oh, it's another one for arrow. I, I can't have that gap in my collection. I need to get it. It's fine <laughs> there with the rest of them. And, um, it must be incredible to be in a position where you've had that detail and that care put into your release. And it must be quite hard to sometimes just look at your collection with other stuff like Cronenberg titles and all these horrors and these classics and yours is part of their kind of back catalog. Yeah. Right? Uh, nothing makes me more proud than being part of the, the era collection. I think it's so cool. And, and you're right. They, they put such love and in, into the release and getting to do all of these, you know, special features and, you know, because I, I'm, I'm very attached to the idea of sharing what I've been figuring out as a director with, you know, like a lot, I didn't go to film school. So a lot of how I learned how to make a movie was from bonus features and commentary tracks. Yeah. And so, you know, I really want to approach my own releases like, well, maybe this will help somebody figure out how to make a movie, you know, and, and yeah, with, with arrow, you know, they just did tons of beautiful work on that release. I mean, in, in the, in the U S I don't even think we released that movie on Blu-ray no, but you know, Arrow released Blu-ray with beautiful packaging and special features and and all these things. So yeah, they're 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 the best. It's amazing, and this led obviously to your most recent title, which we're promoting now, and obviously you're doing a lot of press for it over here. It's just being released, so we've got Arch Enemy. Can you tell, without spoiling it too much, the listeners out there that are wanting to listen today and kind of get into this title a little bit about the film without spoiling it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Arch Enemy is like my kind of psychedelic gritty uh take on the superhero idea right uh where i didn't want to i don't think i I don't think that superhero movies should be a genre of film like they shouldn't feel a certain way the superheroes are this incredible mythology set of characters set of ideas and in comic books you know since at least the early 80s they have, you know, in comic books, the creators of superheroes have created the, uh, the, the have, have have talked to their audience in this incredibly sophisticated way so that you get things like, you know, Electra Assassin, where it's just this mind fuck of, you know, like psychology and experimental art and horror. And you already know who this character is. And you don't need to have your hand held through. She's bit by a radioactive Electra or what, you know, like, yeah. Um, and I thought, you know, when I started working on Arch Enemy, I thought I want to do a, a movie about superheroes that's like that, that's in that mode. Like we're familiar with what these characters are and, and but what other kind of aesthetics, what other kind of genres could I bring to it? How could I make a, a superhero movie that, that could feel like what would Wong Kar Wai do or Nicholas Reffin do if they were given a superhero movie? You know, um, and so I'd, I'd had this idea of a guy in a in a tattered cape sitting at a bar drinking whiskey, telling people about how he used to be a superhero, but he lost his powers and he's from another dimension and nobody believes him. And he kind of spirals into sort of this idea of uh, what it's like to have had all of your glory days behind you. And now you're broken and sort of started there uh, in doing something that then became kind of this, I don't know, repo man meets the Punisher (laughs) kind of kind of movie Um, starring Joe Manganiello, who is, you know, known as being sort of the most handsome man on the planet and and really looks like Superman if you give him a chance. But in our movie, he becomes a completely deconstructed, grimy, you know, broken uh, thing of a man. 
when you were writing this film, because obviously with that casting choice, was it your number one thought or was it kind of hoping that you could land him in this role, knowing that he's quite popular and everyone loves him and you're thinking, oh, this is, can I pull this off? Or was it a kind of a, you wrote this thinking with him in mind from day one? I, I didn't think of cast at all when I was writing it. I was really focused yeah. on the character. A, lo- a lot of times what winds up happening with me is that first I, I write a thing and then if I'm lucky enough that it's going to get to become a movie, then I pick up the script as a director yeah. and look at it and go, what was this idiot thinking when he wrote this script? <laughs> and then I try to figure out how we'll make it a movie. So I didn't have anybody in mind. Um, but yeah, it was very fortunate that, you know, he, he was interested in working with Spectre Vision, who, who produced the movie um, and who had produced Daniel's Real and, and who also produced Mandy. And, you know, sort of have built up this library of these kind of, um, you know, genre movies that are insane. I don't know how else to describe them. And and, yeah. and Joe really wanted to do something with them. He didn't know what. And it was um, it was perfect that we had Arch Enemy, you know, which I was trying to figure out how to make. And and it was just absolutely perfect for him because he's a guy who had been they had wanted him to play Superman at one point. And he couldn't do it because of a scheduling conflict with True Blood. So yeah. the idea of an actor who had 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 and lost the opportunity to be Superman playing a Superman uh, who who is lost really appealed to him. You know, I mean, Joe is just like he's obsessed with comics. He and I, yeah. Upon our first meeting, we just started talking about comic books and sort of the deconstructing the myth of Superman and and, and all these things and. Um, so he was so he was you're right in that he was exactly the perfect guy to do it but I didn't know that until we met up and decided to work together plus the name Max Fist is probably the best name you could be cast in a film <laughs> it's pretty fun I mean you get to join a pantheon of other you know legendary Maxes you know yeah. among them uh, uh the mad Max and and other uh, a couple other choice Maxes it's a it's a good it's a good name for punching <laughs> I'm excited as well that he's obviously going to go off and be Deathstroke in his own film as well. I think he'll be absolutely incredible and then get that chance to show how much of a great actor he is. He's kind of underrated, I think. He's under the radar. I don't think he's getting to the places he deserves yet. I I think that's exactly right. And that's something he and I spoke about a lot is that he is, you know, he's really known for these like very physical roles like Magic Mike. And he's actually, you know, he's amazing in the Magic Mike movies, especially Magic Mike 2. But because he's so, um, you know, he's like a, a kind of deep Tennessee Williams-esque, you know, character actor trapped in the body of a, you know, quarterback. Yeah. And so, um, you know, yes, he, he constantly needs the opportunity to shine as kind of a dramatic actor because he'll always be able to rise to that. And, and I think you're right that he's a bit underrated uh, because people see him maybe simply as sort of what he is physically and he's great physically. I mean, this movie has him, you know, punching people and shooting people and getting tackled and and he loves to do all of that too. Yeah. Uh, but he also loves to sit down and really think about, you know, who, who the character is and what's his arc and what does he bring to it. I mean, he was so into this role when we first started talking about the character, he was like, I'm thinking about having a couple of my teeth surgically removed to play this homeless guy. And we were like, I don't think you need to do that. I think yeah. we can do that with prosthetics. Like yeah. It's okay. You know, but he was just like so committed and he, um, he actually hired a consultant, a person who was, um, who is now uh, like a, a recovery therapist, but who used to be a homeless meth addict. Wow. 
hired this ex homeless meth addict to sort of be his coach on, you know, what was it like to live on the streets and be an addict? What was it like to, to do meth? Like, you know, he like yeah. went very deep in, in pursuit of, of who the character was. That's proper dedication. I bet if anyone listening is a director is like, I wish I could get that from everyone I cast in my films to be that committed and dedicated to a role. That's insane. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you bring that up. That's always been, um, I think my thing, you know, my first movie, which was this very, very small slasher movie, when I uh, when I started working with the actors on that, or everybody, everybody on the crew, the whole thing, it was I was really obsessed with trying to make sure everybody knew that although this is a slasher movie, it has the slasher movie conceit, and a lot of people are going to get cut up. Like I am taking it very seriously emotionally, and yeah. all of that. All I need all of the actors to take it seriously. This is a movie about trauma. This is a movie about like you know what what has happened to us. We can connect to, and and all the way down to the crew, like. Like, guys, this, please don't, you know, call this a low budget slasher movie. This is like a thing we're, we're, tr we're trying to do it. And like really obsessively trying to make sure that they understood how seriously I did it. I, I, I took it and, you know, sort of prepared for it so that by example, they would join me. And now I, I think that, you know, by the time I've gotten to the, these next movies, <clears throat> I've realized I, I don't as much have the need to do that anymore because it's like, oh, that's what we're doing. We're making, you know, it's a genre movie, but we take it very seriously and we're going to show up prepared and, and obsessed. And, and so, you know, luckily, like all of the actors I've worked with since then um, and the crew have really understood that. But it is, it, I think that's an interesting, you know, it's an interesting battle to figure out how to fight when you're doing genre movies, which can always go in the direction of let's just figure out a way to point the camera at some cool piece of rubber getting squirting blood, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, but like, what, what about all of the rest of what the movie needs to be in order to really say something and communicate a feeling? I think there's an interesting, I don't know, history of, of, of genre cinema, like battling in that tension. And now this film's done and obviously the UK will get the release here with the lockdown and everything that's gone on with COVID and stuff. Has this given you a chance to evaluate and see what you want next? Have you been able to write or finish projects that you haven't had time to until now? Because obviously we've not got the option just to go out there and make films as normal. Well, first of all, luckily, you know, I spent about the first half of so far half, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully yeah. it ends soon. Yeah. The first half of the pandemic, um, working on this movie because we finished shooting Arch Enemy right before the pandemic hit. Yeah. So I was doing all of the editing and everything remotely, you know, via Zoom and, and we created the whole movie that way. So that kept me very, very busy, which was a blessing, wonderful thing to be thankful for. And, um, and yeah, and so now I have a, a script for another movie that I wrote with Brian, who uh, collaborated with me on Daniel Isn't Real. We have a horror movie about witchcraft and capitalism uh it's kind of a crime horror movie um that we are hoping to get made this year and you know at the same time having now made these three movies that people seem to like um a lot more sort of opportunities have been coming my way so so far in my life i've written everything i do because where else am i going to find material that i'm interested in that's that's you know good um yeah. but now i'm starting to get you know, people calling me up saying, hey, we've got the rights to this cool novel or, hey, check out this script. And and it's sort of, um, you know, bringing more collaborators into my life 
in order to find new you know stories that i that are exactly right for me to tell but which i maybe wouldn't have thought of uh and that's that's been really exciting so i don't know exactly where that's gonna lead to next specifically but it feels uh it, it feels hopeful and exciting to uh to have a body of work you know so people can say oh i see what you do i see i see that you're interested in genre but you want to have this twist on it like that's that's been really satisfying that's awesome and a question I ask everyone that comes on the show, because a lot of upcoming directors or cinematographers or editors or just people that want to be in the film industry listen to the podcast. So when I've asked people like Neil Blomkamp, uh, Neil Marshall, etc., um, what advice do you give to those people that are listening today that want to try and make their first film or get involved in being a part of a production of a film or just getting themselves out there and a name for themselves in an industry that I believe is really hard to kind of break through in at the moment. Yeah, no, I know it, it really is. But I think there's a couple things and I, you know, it's, it's such a difficult calling professional career, whatever you want to call it that um, I think you have to be prepared to, <laughs> to be prepared to suffer a little bit, but, 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 but for me, I think part of it was, painting myself into a corner where there was nothing else that I could do. <clears throat> and simultaneous to that, being incredibly patient and not freaking out. So I spent a lot of time prior to making Daniel Isn't Real being really freaked out that I was going to die, literally die without having made a movie that I could 100% stand behind and therefore would just be lost like dust. Yeah. And, um, and then what I realized after having made the movie and having an incredible sense of peace from having made it is that all of that time that I spent freaking out could have been better spent doing anything other than freaking out. But, um, you know, like watching cool movies on the criterion channel or writing or just yeah. going to the beach and practicing meditation because you need to be not freaked out in order to make a movie, which is a real contradiction because it's, it will freak you out. It's so intense and difficult, but you'd need to, find ways to cope with your anxiety. And I, um, and so there was so much temptation along the way to say, well, maybe I'll, uh, maybe I'll start my own company or, or I'll do, maybe I'll take this job. You know, all of these things come your way that seem like they'll make your life easier, but will divert you away from the single-minded focus of, of getting a movie made. And so you, in some ways you have to just be incredibly devoted to it and prepare for a lot of sacrifice and also try to train yourself not to be destroyed by those sacrifices. Um, this is all very general, but I think it's a it's quite an emotional game. And, and yeah. when people quit trying to make movies, it's because their emotional reality devours them. Uh, where you know maybe just maybe if there's you survive in the most basic way you can, and eventually it, it will happen. And then I guess you know the other the more practical advice is make stuff. You know my. My example of I was offered money to make it sort of a promo edit and I turned it into an opportunity to make a music video. And, um, I, you know, I had several things like that come my way. You know, after my second music video, Warner Brothers Records called me up and said, hey, we, we like what you do, but it's you know super weird, but you have a vision. So do you want to do you want to do a music video for this like pop punk band? And that, you know, helped me yeah. develop a career. You just you you have to make things and you have to also understand that the thing you make might not be the one single reality breaking thing that that sends you up the charts but um 
you have to put things out there and we have, you know, we have the capabilities of doing that. So put things out there and don't, don't despise yourself <laughs> if you feel like you're not where you want to be, because it is always going to take you longer. I mean, we really, our minds have really been melted by the occasional, uh, you know, wonder kid. I, I, you know, I, I knew Harmony Corinne a long time ago and it really blew my mind knowing him because I thought that, any 18 year old with vision would immediately be able to make gummo. And he is a once in a generation or maybe once in a three generation wonderkind, you know, super artist. And some of us, it takes us decades before yeah. we can make our first movie. And then it's not even as cool as gummo and that's okay too. You know, it's hard, isn't it? It's easier said than done to not be your own worst critic and to hard on yourself and constantly going, well, this is a battle and everyone else is doing it better, but it's really hard to kind of take a step back sometimes and not get caught up in it. Yeah. I think it's, it's important that, you know, the thing that I started to learn was um, that you feel like your anxiety is like a unique disability, but yeah. it turns out that it's the thing that connects all of us, you know, into the same experience. And, you know, when I, um, when I was about to do some kind of hate, I had done, you know, all these music videos and very visual things, but this was going to be the first time I was really going to work with actors. And I um, signed up to do acting classes and I signed up to do workshops for directors about working with actors. And, you know, the first thing I said to my teacher was, I feel, I feel so much anxiety about, you know, uh, you know, and I started talking about it like I am the king of anxiety. Like I've invented being anxious about doing work. And, and she was basically like, that's what I teach. Like I teach you how to prepare and rehearse with actors so that th that anxiety can disperse. And it, and it really made me start to understand that like, that's what we do as creative people or specifically what we do as directors is to be prepared in a way so that that, that inevitable anxiety does not get the better of you. And so you don't need to treat your anxiety like it's some like unique you know, mental condition. It's simply the fact of what you've chosen to do. And then there's all of these other tools, you know, and this is why David Lynch won't shut up about meditating for 50 years. It's all, you know, yeah. it's like <laughs> everybody out there is talking about it, but I think we all still, we feel these things so internally that we think that it's our own particular mania, but like, no man, it's a really angsty situation to direct. And so do these 15, 20, 25 things to dissipate that. So you can be in the moment and, and, and have a creative career. I think what's good as well now is it's more people are prepared to take the mask off and show that they've got that anxiety. And it's not just, you know, a couple of people, it's not something that people are ashamed of anymore. So if you're looking out there, all those people that you think are really brave and are constantly battling, they're just the same. They've got the same battles. They've got the same days. They don't want to be on show and want to be able to just tackle everything that comes. And sometimes you just need to say, well, actually, I'm not okay. And I want to just take a time out. Yeah, no, I think that's true. I think, you know, previous generations um, really insisted on this like face of stoicism that I think was important for them. Yeah. Uh, I think they needed to project strength to the people that worked for them. I think they needed to project strength to the studios that hired them. Uh, but now we live in a world where everybody is pretty comfortable just being like a shrieking mass of gelatinous anxiety. <laughs> which <laughs> yeah. be overwhelming when you look at it on mass, but exactly as, as you say, it, it also means that sort of the, the masks are off and we can understand what some of even our greatest heroes are feeling and connect that to how we're feeling. I, I remember hearing Ridley Scott a long time ago say that sometimes directing 
uh, feels like the most lonely thing in the world. And I think at, at the time I, I may have took that as sort of like a heroic comment or, you know, he sees himself standing on the mountaintop or whatever, but you yeah. know, as you go on, you realize, Oh, what he means is you actually feel miserably lonely and you don't know who to turn to for help. And you have to make these decisions and, and it's a sucky feeling Yeah, and knowing that, you know, okay. Even the man that directed Blade Runner is miserable and, and, yeah. and an anxious wreck, but then you get it together and you know, it's, you're not, you're not faking that you're okay. You're just, you're communicating in a clear way to the people around you and you get through it. And you make Blade Runner. And you make fucking Blade Runner. <laughs> yeah, which isn't a bad way to show. <laughs> it's okay when you're up that mountain. <laughs> One thing I do on the podcast, but I ask every guest that comes on to pick the outro music to make the episode unique to them. So every oh, cool. guest can choose a piece of music. Now, if I gave you too long to think about it, you'd be looking. I've on got an answer. I've already got an answer because I um I posted it on on Twitter this morning Amazing. because it's um it's Yoko Ono's birthday. Oh, okay. Uh, it's, she's eighty eight years old. Um, you know the day that we're recording this. So um, I'm I've just I love Yoko Ono. I think she's super super interesting. So um, she has a song off of the record Fly called Mind Train. Okay, cool. And I love I know that. Most YouTube, people are like, oh, like we take about 10 minutes of the interview to try and break it down from 10 songs <laughs> to three to two to one, or they're like, oh, I don't know if I want to score or a piece of music by my favorite band, but you were there straight away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just lucky that I had been thinking about her music first thing this morning. And so, you know. That's awesome. Um, Adam, I want to thank you for taking the time to come on the podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. It's one of those ones where I'm sitting here now thinking we could do a follow-up, we could do a trilogy. It's one of those ones where I think I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, great, man. Happy to happy to do it. This is a great chat. Right on. All right, thanks, Mark. So there it is. There's my interview with me and Adam. And as I said at the start of today's interview, a guest I want to get back as soon as possible. And the good news is we did speak after the interview and he's agreed to come back on real soon. So we'll do an hour special, delve deeper into the film industry, talk more about influences and just wherever the conversation takes us. A huge, huge thank you for Adam's taking the time to come on the Mark and Me podcast. And obviously, as I said at the start of today's episode, we are there talking about his brand new film, Arch Enemy, which is out now. Go and check it out. And if you really, really want to win this film, go on my social media this week and I'll be running a competition on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram to win this on DVD. And then you can watch the film and let me know just how much you loved it. Also, as you know right now, Mark and Me has never been busier. I'm having two episodes come out every single week. It's absolutely full on. I had nine different guests in March alone and it isn't going to stop anytime soon. But to keep this podcast going and up and running and keeping it where it needs to be, I need support. So if you jump onto markandme.com, on there there's links to my Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. I say it on every episode, if you can't support my Patreon, I don't ask anything more than just sharing it on your social media. It costs absolutely nothing. You can retweet an episode, put it on your Instagram or share it on Facebook and it does make a massive difference. I see new people then that are amongst your friends list, listen to the podcast and then come and follow or let me know that they found it out for a friend. And word of mouth is absolutely huge, so please keep those shares coming. But if you really love the podcast and you want to be in with a chance of winning some incredible prizes from Vice Press, DVDs, Blu-rays, Last Exit to Nowhere t-shirts and more prizes every single month, 
I run this exclusively on my Patreon page. The link is on markandme.com, but not only that, you'll get episodes early, you'll get guest announcements early, and I'm going to be offering some incredible prizes that money can't buy. And honestly, if you'd seen some of the winners over the last few weeks winning some amazing posters from people like Vice Press with Bella Grace, also some stuff from Matt Ferguson, there's absolutely loads of prizes thanks to the generosity of Vice Press. So honestly, stick around and you'll keep seeing these prizes all over my Twitter, all over my Facebook and all over my Instagram. But it costs as little as £1 a month. And for that, you're getting eight episodes. You're getting an opportunity to win loads of prizes and just support me. And that gives me the opportunity to go out and record more interviews, get more and more podcasts laid down and then out there for you. So it's a win-win for everyone. I want to thank everyone for tuning in today. Thanks for sticking by and supporting the Mark and Me podcast. It means the absolute world. And we're going to be releasing more and more episodes in the next few days. So stick around and I'll speak to you all real soon.